As we come now to the preaching of God's Word, I would ask if you would turn with me to the end of Romans chapter 7 and the beginning of Romans chapter 8. While I will be focusing on Romans chapter 8, verse 1 this morning, we're going to work our way up to it over the course of the sermon. So once we're done reading here and you return to your seats, I urge you to hang on to your Bibles and turn back to Romans chapter 1, and we'll work our way up to Romans chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our most gracious and most loving Father in heaven, We lift our souls before you in worship, seeking your face, seeking the truth of your word, desiring to be holy and blameless before you, for you are holy. Show us your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths. Lead us in the truth, for you are the God of our salvation, and we find that we are utterly dependent upon you. For there is is no good in us apart from your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember your tender mercies and your loving kindness to us, for these have been a great comfort to all your saints, even from of old. Remember not the sins of our youth, nor any of our transgressions, but deal with us according to your mercy and for the sake of your great goodness. Your word tells us that you instruct sinners in the way and guide the meek in judgment, teaching them your way. That all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep your covenant and your testimonies. O Lord, look upon our afflictions and pains and forgive us all our sins. Keep us safe, keep our souls safe and grant deliverance. As we put our trust in you, deliver us from guilt and shame and all condemnation. Let integrity and uprightness preserve us, for we wait upon you. We confess that we are weak and needy, and we often struggle to know in the depths of our hearts the comfort of your great salvation. As we come now to the preaching of your holy word, take your truth by the wonderful working power of your Holy Spirit. And Plant it deeply in our hearts. Make us to know with full assurance the efficacy of our union with Christ. Remove all doubt. Cause us to rejoice before your holiness. And we pray that you will do this great work in us day by day, even this day, for the sake of your son Jesus. For we ask in his all-powerful name. Amen. You may be seated. As we can continue in this 
series in basic theology and focusing on the biblical teaching regarding our union with Christ, we will be looking at the wonderful, comforting gospel truth that is for those who are in Christ, that there is now no condemnation. There's a great danger today coming in the form of a worldly philosophy and influence that Christians will begin to think about their faith in the way the world does. The influence comes from outside the church, yes, but sadly, it also at times comes from within the church. This is but one reason doctrine, biblical teaching, is so, so important. As rational creatures and information-seeking creatures, we have an astounding capacity to learn, to take in copious amounts of information, and to take that information and assimilate it in a way that makes sense to our minds and to our reason. And though God created man after his image in original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, after the fall of Adam, all of these were affected, including our minds and our ability to think. In the fall, our intellect is marred and became deficient. Our thoughts are influenced and corrupted by sin. And thus, we find it difficult to even sustain a logical thought in its integrity all the way to the logical and necessary end and conclusion. We are weak in our knowledge of God and of his word, and we tend to saturate ourselves in an almost overwhelming volume of information and entertainment, and much of that content is a carrier for worldly philosophy. Have you noticed that the world views Christianity and all other religions, as, for that matter, as useful depending on what social, psychological, or physical benefits they may bring? In other words, the world doesn't assess Christianity in the categories of true and false, but in the categories of useful and harmful. This is the therapeutic impulse of our age. This, this, the world does not think of Christianity as divine revelation as such, but as human opinion and invention. The world does not believe that God reveals our deepest need and then provides the remedy in Jesus Christ. The world believes that we already know our deepest needs or we can discover them and that religion can be respectable only in, to the extent that it helps meet those very needs. And so it is a grave danger for us when, as Christians, we begin to think about our faith the, world, the way the world does. We need to realize that if we start where the world starts, by thinking that we know our real needs and that God is useful in meeting them, we will not know what true Christianity is, and we will undermine the truth and the work of the gospel in our lives. Our focal verse this morning, as I have said, is Romans Chapter 8, verse 1, which begins, there is therefore, so it will be helpful for us to see what has led up to this point. That is what precedes the therefore conclusion. To this, I would like 
to take us back to the beginning of Romans and highlight the progression of judicial argumentation, if I may use that phrase, through the chapters that leads us up to Romans chapter 8. Hopefully we will be able to see then that this progression shows us three things. One, our need for salvation. Two, God's provision for salvation. And three, the result of that salvation. So let's begin with point one, our need for salvation. Romans teaches that the most fundamental problem in the universe is that God's human creatures, mankind, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of his glory and are now condemned under his perfectly just wrath. This is the fundamental problem. This is the condition we call sin. Our sin has the consequence of incurring God's holy wrath. Another way to say it is that there is real and genuine guilt on every person because of sin. And there is real condemnation over every person because the judge and maker of the universe is just and holy. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul demonstrates our universal need for salvation, summarizing in chapter 3, verse 23, declaring, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This all includes everyone both Jew and Gentile. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are therefore under his condemnation and subject to his wrath. And beginning at chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins the judicial case against the Gentile. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. As we read this first section of Romans, we can see that the truth Paul is proclaiming is almost in the form of an indictment being presented by a prosecuting attorney. And I think this legal courtroom analogy can be useful as we understand that it is God who is both judge and justifier. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. As Paul writes later in chapter 8, ignorance of the law is never an excuse. And the indictment Paul brings reveals that ignorance is not even in view. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Even the Gentile, pagan, unbelieving world is without excuse. Even they who do not have the benefit of God's special revelation, his word, know enough of the truth of God and are accountable for their actions. But in their unrighteousness, they suppress this truth. They suppress this knowledge of God. 
And although though they suppress this truth, they are still without excuse. Because although though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this suppression of the truth never manifests itself in some sort of benign agnosticism or secular unbelief. There is no such thing. This suppression of the truth always results in idolatry. Secular humanism is not a scientific, non-religious framework. It is a form of idolatry, placing man or the ideas of man upon the altar to be worshipped. If man does not worship the creator God, he will worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And when man does this, God gives them over to their vile passions and to a debased mind. Now please know that I don't want to be guilty of preaching from the headlines here, but we should not be surprised when we look at the culture around us and see all manner of perversions even perversions beyond our darkest imaginations. This is the way of man when he becomes an idolater. He will of necessity fall into various forms of unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip and slander, backbiting, hating God, violence, pride and boasting. We even invent evil things. There's disobedience to parents. Man becomes undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. All of this and so much more man does. Knowing, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death and not only do them, but approve of those who practice them. There is something in man that is not satisfied to practice unrighteousness alone. We want to pull others into our sin and approve of their deeds. And let us be sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God does not turn a blind eye to sin, even when it comes to the pagan who has never heard the gospel for they are without excuse. Paul also has a word to the self-righteous, judgmental person. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul then turns his attention to the Jew. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law, will be judged by the law. The Gentile sinning without the law will perish without the law, but the Jew who possesses the law will be judged by the law. In verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul then begins the indictment against the Jew, acknowledging their possession of God's law. In verse 21, he speaks to the hypocrites, writing, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? In doing these sinful deeds, the Jews prove themselves to be hypocrites and a people who dishonor God. In their sin, they are blasphemers, as we read in verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. The hypocritical Jew, who, Jews who were boasting and resting and counting on their heritage as Jews, and even in their circumcision, have a misplaced confidence. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. In chapter 3, Paul concludes his indictment against the Jews, citing their unbelief and the fact that their condemnation because of their unbelief is just. And he even answers the question, is the Jew better off than the Gentile? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And then Paul goes on to quote several Old Testament passages. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing. And bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the description of the unbelieving sinner before a holy God. The Jews' unbelief was sin, and their unbelief led them to overtly sin, and in their hypocrisy, they then turned around and judged the Gentiles. And what was the result of this hypocrisy? The name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles. And this is an outrage. This is a horror that should strike terror in our hearts. We need to watch out for our testimony before a watching world. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we don't understand the great offense of blasphemy because we don't comprehend the great holiness of God. Sin is not first a sin because it does harm to others, but because it blasphemes God. And we can be guilty of blasphemy in a number of ways. John Piper articulates this so well with the following list of the ways in which we blaspheme God. We blaspheme God when the glory of God is not honored, the holiness of God is not reverenced, the greatness of God is not admired, the power of God is not praised, the truth of God is not sought, 
The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness, the goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person, the person of God is not loved. You see, there is no one righteous. No, not one. We are all blasphemers in that we fall short of his glory. How can we put off this blasphemy and get caught up in the reverential awe of God? Even when we have the law, Scripture informs us that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law, we only have the knowledge of sin. What is man to do then? Is there any help? Is this an open and shut case and there is therefore no hope for acquittal? And this brings us to our second point, God's provision for salvation. We cannot be justified by the law and declared not guilty. For whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law only condemns. We all fall short. We can't even be transformed and delivered from our guilt by law-keeping. For by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Then where is our help? Where is our hope to be found? Paul, the prosecuting attorney here in Romans, takes his seat. And Paul, the defense attorney, stands to speak, as it were, in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. No difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. But now something has been revealed that before was hidden in types and shadows. That which was witnessed by the law and the prophets, that scarlet thread we sometimes call it, has been revealed and it is the righteousness of God given to all who by faith believe and hope in Jesus Christ. But how is this possible? Are not all guilty? Have not all fallen short? Hasn't everyone sinned in their blasphemy? But here, the Spirit-inspired defense attorney reveals that as we believe and exercise the gracious gift of faith in Christ Jesus, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot being revealed here. 
a lot here in verses 24 through 26. Important terms and concepts that we need to understand are here presented, and so we need to engage our minds and comprehend them. We don't want to use these churchy words without understanding. Justified. The first term here is justified. When we read justified or justification in this context, we need to understand this is a judicial declaration of not guilty. The case for the prosecution has already made the case that all have sinned. Therefore, all are guilty. But here we see that an effective defense is already in place for those who believe. They have been justified, declared not guilty by God, the judge of all creation. When we place our faith in Christ, there is a moment in time when we are justified and declared righteous. It is finished. It is final. We don't need to return again and again to the courtroom to be declared righteous and justified. Grace. And this justification has been accomplished freely by God, by God's grace. Grace is a most precious term known to those who are in Christ. Grace is that which is freely given and cannot be earned and is never, never deserved. That we may remember what grace means, we sometimes turn it into an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is the powerful gift of God in Christ Jesus. Redemption. Apart from union with Christ, we are all enslaved by and in bondage to all the miseries of sin. But Christ has paid the price for all his elect. His death on the cross purchased our freedom, our release from bondage, our redemption. He has redeemed us, and we now belong to him. Where once we were held captive to sin and death, in Christ we have been ransomed and set free. Propitiation. Propitiation is not a word we use very often. In fact, most of us only encounter the word in Scripture. But it is a very good word and so very important for us to understand. The problem of sin is that it incurs the wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But the same God who righteously responds to sin with his wrath sent his own son to be a propitiation, that is, to be the means of satisfying God's holy wrath. In Christ, God's wrath is turned away from the sinner and is instead poured out on Jesus. Blood. Why all the talk about blood? Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And this is a reiteration of what had already been revealed in Leviticus 17.11. The bloody atoning sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to the final bloody sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by the blood of Christ that God's holy wrath is satisfied, and by the blood of Christ that atonement is made for our sins. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, 1 Peter 3.18. The life is in the blood and faith, that all-important faith, faith that is the instrument 
of justification. It is the hand that takes hold of an, and appropriates all of the benefits of our salvation in Christ. Faith is much more than simple belief. Faith has an object, and the object of saving faith is Christ Jesus. Faith is unhindered by doubt. It is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith also includes personal trust and reliance. And saving faith, trust in Christ alone for salvation. In chapter 4, Paul demonstrates that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works of the law. We need to understand this. And that the covenant promise made to Abraham and his seed was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also, also to all of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Knowing the importance of these terms and understanding the great eternal truths they represent, we see more clearly the great love of the Savior. And so in some feeble attempt to grasp the height and the depth of this love, which truly does surpass all knowledge, we need to see ourselves on the cross. We need to imagine the entire weight of God's wrath poured out on us. We need to recognize the horrors of hell that Christ went, underwent for our sake there at Golgotha. The sobering reality is that if you are not in Christ, you are dead. The protection from God's condemnation extends only to those who look to Jesus by faith and are therefore hid in him. If Jesus doesn't take the punishment, then we do. The cross is what could have been, should have been, our experience, our reality, our torture. But by faith, the only crucifixion we will ever know is the one Christ endured for us. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes to the Galatians. And this is the essence behind this quote on our union with Christ. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. If we are not united to Christ, his suffering is worthless to us. His death will not spare us our death. It doesn't matter how good we are or how often we go to church, how often we pray, what charities we give to. None of it matters if Christ is not dwelling in us and we in him. As long as he remains outside of us, we will still be condemned because God is perfectly holy, just, and good, and he must punish every sin. But to be in Christ, to be in Christ, this is the greatest comfort imaginable. There is no place more secure than to be in Christ. In Christ, we are saved from the curse of sin because Christ took the curse for us. This is how crucial this union is. 
It is only when we are in Christ that we can meaningfully and truly sing the beautiful and profound words of Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread, Jesus. Jesus and all in him is mine. But before this message gets too long, let's turn finally to our third point, the result of our salvation. Romans chapter 5 opens with, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is more to the life we now live in Christ than the punctiliar moment of our justification. That is just a beginning. We now have peace with God. Peace, not anxiety. Peace, not worry and lament. Peace now and peace tomorrow and throughout all of eternity. A fundamental change has taken place. We, where we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, we walk in newness of life and grow in grace and grow in sanctification. This is the thrust of Romans 5 through 7. In these chapters, it is almost as if the defense has rested, has rested its case in and having been declared now not guilty, the judge takes us to a sidebar with him to let us know what to expect next. And that may be taking the analogy a bit too far, but to the extent that it is useful, there you are. Once we are justified, things are clearly different than they were before. In Christ, we now have access to his grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We glory in tribulation. We are saved from his wrath. We are reconciled to God in Christ. We will surely be saved in Christ. Though we were conceived in sin and death through Adam, we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness and will reign in life through Jesus Christ. We are made righteous in Christ. Though sin abounds in Christ, grace does much more abound. As we exercise ourselves in the grace that is now ours in Christ, we more and more die to sin and live to Christ. This is our sanctification. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Therefore, we are to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies and obey its lust. Rather, Rather, we are to present our members as instruments of righteousness to God. When we were slaves to sin, we were free in regard to righteousness, the end of which is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, we render our fruit to holiness, the end of which is everlasting life. It's a profound truth. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In this life, we will always struggle against remaining sin. We still need to daily pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We will continually be putting off the old man and putting on Christ, which brings us back to our texts. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is now, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There is a tension, a tension we find in the process of sanctification. There is a war that rages within us as we are being sanctified. But we are to live confident that the victory is sure. It is in Jesus Christ that we find deliverance. It is in Christ that we find freedom. It is in Christ that we are being sanctified. It is in Christ we live and move and have our being. The good news, the great and wonderful news, is that for those who truly are in Christ, there is now, even now, no condemnation. Though there will be many days when our adversary, the devil, will try to deceive and accuse us and swallow us up in feelings of guilt, there is now, on those very days, no condemnation. Those are the enemy's lies that he speaks to our minds, and it is one of the chief tools in his arsenal. You have been declared not guilty, and in Christ there is no condemnation. This is at the core of the faith you have been given, and it is the precious, indestructible gift of God. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Believe it. Live it. Don't dredge up old sins and believe the condemning lies of the evil one. Don't evaluate the failures of, and sins of today and tomorrow and sink into self-condemning despair. Yes, you need to repent of those things. Please don't shift the blame for your sin onto someone else or to something outside yourself or to some genetic or emotional predispositions. Those are not shortcuts to redemption. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, believe the gospel, and give all thanks and glory to God. For there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we pray now that by your Spirit you would convict us and comfort us with the truth of your word and the goodness of your grace. In our weakness, grant us strength, strength of faith and strength of conviction. Fortify us, O Lord, against the attacks of Satan and his lies. Keep us safely within your gates and lead us not into temptation. Keep us from falling into sin, O Lord. Grant us the grace of assurance where we are doubting and and make us to know that truly there is even now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. For we pray this in his holy and victorious name. Amen.